This is a Hive Mind Studio production. Hello, gods and goblins, deities and deviants, and my fellow what the fucks. You're listening to Playing with Advantage, an informative podcast about the various aspects of the tabletop role playing genre. I, as always, am Kenneth Moffat, aka Southern DD, and with me we have the dynamic duo themselves. First up, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. James Bardwell. Hi. That, that, that's it? That's what you're going to give me? Just a hi, hi, hi. There you go. And then the one who stalks darkness, whose shadow casts a doom upon the death itself. We have Mr. Brody. Hi. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was kind of a, that's actually a very appropriate, uh, appropriate intro because today's topic is what do you do in games that you're running or playing in when something happens and it kind of basically throws every idea and plan you have just right off the cliff? So pretty much every D&D game ever. Essentially, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brody, have you ever actually had a game go kind of any way in, in a sing- single uh, direction you thought it would, or is it just... Uh, by direction, do you mean like off the rails completely? I mean, you know, from point A to point B at the, the, and the amount of time you thought it would happen with the things happening you think would happen. Well, I've had a few scenarios where uh, things ended way quicker than I thought they were going to, and it's like, <laughs> uh-oh, I've got to come up with something else on the fly. Yeah, I, I've had BBEGs die within, like, the first 20, 30 minutes of their introduction, and they were supposed to stick around for most of that uh, season. That's had, pretty bad. I had the main villain of a campaign I ran die within the first five minutes of the campaign because of dice rolls made by me, the dungeon master. Sometimes they just they just don't work for you. <laughs> so what we're talking about, folks, is in various aspects. It's more common as a dungeon master because you cannot plan what I call the human element, that the the way your players think, the way they interact, something, some plan they can make that you cannot prepare for. So please don't try. I mean, it's hard. You cannot predict what your players will do 100% of the time. Uh, and it's at those moments where something happens that honestly, as a dungeon master, and even sometimes as a player, you're not prepared for. Well, what do you do when that happens? What are some, I think first some examples of like kind of what we're talking about where, you know, hey, we got A, B, and C plan. And then, oh my God, why is W, X, Y, Z happening kind of thing? Uh, I know... Uh, and I, I let me preface this. I love these kinds of players. Oh, yes. But I know usually in the group, there's one like really out-of-the-box player. That is a very polite way of putting that. <laughs> uh, and they, they tend to help you create situations to exercise your improv abilities. Also as delicately as I could put that. See, I'm not delicate. They're batshit insane. Uh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, you are. Uh uh, I have this this one player in the game that I'm running right now. He he does some things that I do not expect. I usually put, you know, a little plan into what I have going on, and I have a general idea of the order of events, that kind of stuff. Um, but this guy, twice now in the, in the game I'm running, he has really thrown me curveballs, and I've had to kind of reposition and try to figure things out. Um, they were trying to, in this one situation, get these high-level vampires alone and take them out. They discovered that they used this reinforced kind of like steel carriage to get from point A to point B sometimes. So they set up a stakeout by their uh, their hideout. Um, when the 
vampires went to get into the carriage, they had taken uh, bars from the blacksmith, ran it through the carriage wheels. And then the forge cleric, he slams the door and forge welds it shut. Uh, one of them is the barbarian class that uh, goes up a size, right? Yeah. And we've got that kind of themed as a werewolf. So he, he transforms, goes up a size, gets in large casts on him, gets in large casts on him again. So then he takes this carriage and picks it up. Essentially, he's a kaiju at this point. Pretty I mean. much, yes. <laughs> so, like, they are right beside the ocean. I don't, stupid vampires. You know, the, the DM, I feel sorry for the vampires. The DM put their hideout beside the ocean. <laughs> So they, he just picks up the carriage and he walks off into the ocean and holds it under the water until the bubbles stop, uh, which of course means the vampires are dead. Fine. I, okay. I, they were meant for more, but this is not the first time I've had like really important <laughs> enemies die very early yeah. with no warning. I can pivot from this. The issue was there's this NPC that the vampires had captured who was supposed to be there for the group uh, later in the game. The intention was they will save this guy. He will be ingratiated to them. He was the last good paladin of Avacyn in this setting. Like, the last altruistic, powerful character. Well, these vampires had subdued him and had him in the carriage. So when they held the carriage under the water, they essentially just drowned this it, bound man. It wasn't two pairs of bubbles. There were three bubbles. It was four. Oh, oh yeah, three. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, three pairs of bubbles. Um... <laughs> So they break open the carriage and they're like, ha-ha, one dead vampire. Ha-ha, two dead vampires. Oops. <laughs> uh, who is this? Consequences. So now, not only are like the bad guys that are kind of driving the next few sessions dead, this NPC that's super important um, is now just a really beautiful set of armor and a dead body. I mean, they were vampires. Weren't they dead to start with? No, they were undead. Oh, they were undead. They were okay. undead. Now they're redead. Now they're super dead. Now they're redead. <laughs> So, like, I wound up having to pivot from that, and the armor is now inhabited by the spirit of this paladin, right? Yeah. Uh, well, very, they very common thing on Innistrad. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty common. Yeah. So they decide that they're going to uh, keep this armor and try to reproduce it because it's this beautiful armor set, and one of them is a forge cleric. So they want to reproduce it. They store it in the room with this woman that ha they have been keeping because she's gotten herself in a bad situation. She's lost her fiancé because of the party. Um. So they're just trying to keep her safe because her fiancé is now a vampire. Does she know this is because of the party? Not exactly. <laughs> like, she knows she knows now that he's a vampire, but she still loves the guy. And she's lamenting this. She's crying. She's wailing. The armor's also in that room. The armor starts to feel bad for her. Like, it it feels for this woman. Again, this this was a good guy. This is a great altruistic person. I'm getting, like, person. RoboCop vibes here. I mean, it's kind of... Wait, we're getting to Iron Man. Oh, God. Just wait. So... We come to this point in the adventure where the fiancé, who's now a vampire, bad guy, uh, thinks that his fiancé had been cheating on him with this guy on this boat. He finds them. He pulls her off, and the party gets back about the time he's getting ready to execute her with all of his minions around him. He raises this giant axe, and as it's coming down, the armor flies out of the ship and assembles itself around her. Iron Man style. Iron Man style. <laughs> so now this armor and her fiancé are having this huge battle. And they are at a point in the story where they can't really stop and do anything about it because there's this critical plot point and they have to reach it. And it, it just takes them away from the action. So that's what they see as they leave. They'll be back to this in about a month or so. And so I've got a month or so to play with this story. All of this because they came up with this insane, awesome plan to drown these two vampires in their carriage. 
I mean, you got like this, this, this where it's not even, it's, a, it's not even a triangle. It's like a, it's like a pyramid, some like, you know, three-dimensional rabazondal, you know, love shape going on here. Yeah. It's, it's a love polyhedron. <laughs> this is a That's reg- what the poly stands for. <laughs> this is a regular soap opera happening in the background. It, it is. It is definitely a soap. It's actually my favorite part of the campaign. I'm not going to lie. That's the funny thing. These, this randomness, the, these mishaps, they can lead to some of the best scenarios and some of the best parts of any game. Like I'm reminded of one where it was it was I was it was a GURPS game we were playing. I think there were about eight people playing at the time. So it was a rather larger game. And one of the characters in there was a this character his character's name was Bron Melathor. Now I have a ton of stories about Lord Melathor because Lord Melathor was a house noble of Chiliac. Well, but he he's his character was actually kind of a power behind the throne where he's actually trying to move Chiliac to a more progressive way of thinking through various and illegal means. So it was, it was a great, very deep character, a lot of aspects to it. Uh, like, and it, anyway, but this, the one story, they went to a, the island of Absalom. There's a, uh, those of you who don't know anything about um, Galaria and Pathfinder, I'm just speaking a different language. But there was an ancient wizard's tower on there called the Spire of Nyx. Well, in my story, they were looking for an item that was there, and it turns out the item was a lot bigger than they thought. Well, my story called for somebody to destroy the tower, and then the the story then becomes the party trying to rebuild or find a new one of these items. So the whole thing is this ancient group of mages is sending a massive beam of energy to destroy the tower, and uh, Lord Melathor tells all of his party to flee and leave, and he's going to stand at the top of the tower. Like, oh, okay, what, what are you doing? He goes, well, you gave me this cloak of magic deflection. I go, yeah, it can deflect, you know, lower level spells, he goes, well, there is a chance if I roll critically that, would you let, I'm like, okay, look, uh, you know, he, all this other stuff, you've done this great role play getting here. Sure. I will let you attempt to intervene and try to stop this, but there's a, there's a good chance it will kill you. He goes, you know what? I'm fine with that. It's a story point. I'm okay with dying. So this massive beam of white energy begins to slam down on the tower, shaking it apart. He's standing at the top of it, arms open, and he activates the, the cloak of, uh, of, of magic deflection, and he rolls essentially a natural 20. Critical success. Like, cool. It happens. You are able to deflect the energy away and stop it, but you are dead. Now, in GURPS, you have what are called divine intervention. That is where, as you die, some god looks at you and goes, you know what? You are dying a great way. I believe that there is more for you let me bring you back. I have basically, it's, it's a natural 20 death save kind of effect. And, but I make that roll. Like, okay, so you are this, this, and this. That means your DI modifier is a plus two. Your divine intervention is a six. On 3D6, you have to roll a six or under. So I take my dice in front of my screen. I roll it, and I roll a natural three, which is the best roll you can get on 3D6. And so... What was supposed to be an entire thing of them going and finding this new item, like, I mean, he deflected it, so the tower is still there, so now I have pivoted the entire story, but that's the thing. I didn't have to because they set up a, they set up a base in the tower. It was on a, an island that was very well fortified, and they started building a city. They built resources. They built an army, and what was once this small little idea of, you know, okay, the adventurers go find the item, go yada, 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 is now a world-expanding, essentially, kingdom they're building. They're brokering peace between various nations, 
And it ended again with them calling an army of hundreds of thousands to go and close the world wound in the top of in this massive army of demons. Which I'm like, that's awesome. Like that was something I could never have written. The the players pushed that. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned, uh, them taking up residence there and stuff. One of the things I've noticed that kind of throws campaigns off pretty regular is how real estate minded oh, players God, seem yes. to be. If you leave a building vacant, that's their home now. Yes, they're taking that. They're they're fixing to start spending resources on it. They live there now. It, it happens so often. I in in homebrew campaigns, I write several potential player bases into my game for them to choose. Yeah. Because I mean, to be fair, that's I kind of want that to happen because immersion. They want to become part of that oh, yeah. world. They want to you know become. They want to affect it. Uh, what about you, Brody? Any any issues where your players did something you just went? Bleh. I have one. Is more of my fault. My oopsie. <laughs> um, so way back in the day, during my early career as a DM, uh, we were playing three point five. We were playing an Inuyasha style game. This is one of our favorite. We played this game for six or seven years, playing it 3.5, Mutants and Masterminds, 4E, and then going back to 3.5. Good Lord. We had so much fun with it. It was just like we did like the most stupid things with it. Uh, anyhow, this person's going to know who they are. Um, during this game, this person's character had a dad that was uh, a villain. They, he did some really bad things. and. Uh, he had built this character up about wanting to confront his dad and uh, deal with him. So we had finally reached that point. We had, we had, he had powered up. He was ready to go, ready to face his father. We get there. Fight starts. Round two, he's dead. <laughs> uh, I just flatlined. I was like, <laughs> what? And everybody else at the table was like, wow, that ended quicker than we thought. He goes, well, he wasn't so tough. And I was like, uh, what do I do? <laughs> Your uncle shows up. He's also angry. <laughs> I didn't know I had an uncle. Surprise. The story has gone in a new direction. I mean, you're, you're playing an anime. Just have him stand back up and go, this isn't even my final form. Yeah. Back then, though, it was uh, like I was very inexperienced, so there was a lot of things like that that happened. But we just kind of joked about it and played it off, and the story kept going. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of that comes down to like inexperience. Like I had a game where... Literally, uh, I was making a role for my my big bad evil guy, the first role I've ever made for them in the game, critical failure. I then proceeded to roll a total of six critical failures in a row, and that be that villain basically died. It there. was not meant to be. It was not meant to be, and so I had to come up with an entire new story based around these same parameters I had. Like, well, crap, what can I do now? And it uh, it it was it was daunting and difficult, and it was a it was one of those where you flex that improv muscle a lot. Yeah. James, you mentioned something earlier about the player that always thinks outside the box and can create potential problems for the DM to have to think on their feet. That's you. Yeah. That <laughs> was sorry. you in the entire first Tagande campaign. <laughs> Your character, Butcher, created so many scenarios that I was like, what is this? What is happening? You, you didn't like his homage to aliens that was happening in the in the cultist home? No, I loved Butcher. But I loved <laughs> Butcher's my character. Favorite character I've ever played. It was a lot of fun. He I will say this, it was fun for me because James kept me on my toes a lot. Yeah. And I would instead of getting aggravated or, you know, ruffle my feathers, I would say, Okay, I'll, let's see how this ha how this goes. 
I think the the key there is balance. You you ha- you really want to be creative, but you can't be abusive. Yeah. Something I have said in regards to that uh, is that it's okay to play outside the box, but you have to pay the shipping. Yes. <laughs> There's two specific instances I can think of immediately involving James making you think out of the box. Hang on, let me get my popcorn. <laughs> One was uh, y'all were um, fighting some big creature, and uh, I think that was when y'all had hopped through to another. Y'all were in the void. Yeah, yeah. Explore, or y'all were there for a specific quest. This was, y'all were was in this a the middle. King in yellow, or yeah. Okay. Y'all were fighting a boss, and it was one of his underlings. And you had somehow climb up the wall. It's like you wanted to get above him, and it's like, uh, can I get above him? I'm like, okay, uh, yeah, you you can climb up there. And you, I had just gotten spider high. climb. I was super excited. <laughs> he was like on the ceiling, and he's like, I want to drop down on top of him and use my momentum to hit him. And I'm like, what? Uh okay, so he j- he like rolls for it and 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 it was something that I wasn't prepared for. I mean that's just like a minor thing, but it was like okay, just let's see what happens. It was successful. <laughs> How often like when that happens, real quick, like because I I do it a lot with my natural ones where they have to they'll they'll do something to say something like oh crap, how do I make this work mechanically? Like how often are you having to okay? Well um okay well that means this extra damage. Well this is not exactly in the book and having to adjust the rules to fit what your players are doing. Uh, I kind of, I will just on the fly try to come up with something, and most times it's probably not mechanically correct, but it's one of those things that if it's it's something that you feel like this is not right, we'll talk about it after yeah. the game. But in the moment, it's like, all right, this is how it's going to happen. It works for the moment, yeah. Yeah, like most of the time, it's not really a big deal. Like sometimes, like okay, you're you're high up, elevation is going to play into it. Okay, yeah. I'll give you uh, a little bonus to damage because you're falling from a great height. See, I, I'm a, I guess I'm a little more gimmick because what I do is I, I do the whole where I take the fall damage of D&D into account. Or sure, okay, yeah. I will let you deal uh, basically an additional 1d6 for every 10 feet you fall to, to them. They'll add to your damage. However, you will then take that much d6 damage yourself for hitting them. Oh, I'll have to remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, usually I just... Um, I don't think it's actually a mechanical rule in the book, in the 5e rules, but I usually give players advantage if they're attacking from a uh, height advantage. Yeah. Because yeah. um, to me, it makes sense. Especially for like ranged weapon. Yeah. If you're high up, like you're sniping something or using a bow to uh, hit targets on the ground, that's, I mean, you have advantage. Yeah. You're, you're higher up. Uh, the second instance involving James May thinking out of the side <laughs> of the box is uh, during the General Maroc story arc, uh, y'all were at the, the, near the climactic end of that fight, and y'all were fighting against the um, werewolf lich, Luprica. Yeah, I remember Luprica. I hate She it. was... Her? Yeah, it was a female werewolf lich. There was uh, another favorite character. She didn't speak a whole lot, but she was powerful. Um, I think infamous is a better word than favorite. Yeah. It was a very good adversary. Matter of fact, that fight was really rough. Uh, she had she was slinging all kinds of high level spells at him, and had a giant werewolf. Uh, it was basically like a dumb beat stick that she used to protect herself. But anyhow, uh, y'all were trying to rescue some civilians, and she had this uh magic artifact that she could teleport things at will. Like she could teleport huge armies with this thing. That is how they hopped around so much and were so dangerous because they were unpredictable. Well, she was using this weapon offensively. 
like sweeping up uh, enemy troops and just teleporting them into random locations, uh, just disrupting enemy lines, stuff like that. Well, during this fight, Butcher is running to help these civilians. Well, she opens a portal and just sweeps all of them through there, Butcher included. So they're free falling uh, at terminal velocity from super high up. And Butcher's like, uh, I don't know if I can save everybody. As a matter of fact, I don't know if the rest of them lived. But Butcher, everybody else was kind of panicking. It's like, what's Butcher going to do? Uh, <laughs> James had this look of panic on his face because he's like, I guess I'm going to die. <laughs> and uh, Butcher made a dwarven-sized splatter on the ground when he, <laughs> he finally hit at terminal velocity. Wait, wait, wait. But Butcher was a dwarf? Yeah, yeah Butcher was a Butcher's actually the only dwarf I've ever played. So wait, that means all the stuff you were doing to the cult, because uh, I had you like as like as a human monk. Or oh no, no, nope, he was a dwarf. a dwarf. And what's crazy is he was this really sweet, good-natured guy. They called him Butcher because that was that's his job. Is what he did. He was a butcher. He, butcher he was a cook. Out. This just like blows. Because now I have the okay. Yeah, that's wow. So uh, that that led into uh, everybody at the table remembering that Butcher had Death Ward cast on him. At the very end of the previous session, like I just thought I was dead. So in the moment, Butcher landed, he splatted on the ground, and uh, everyone's like, "Oh, did he just die?" And he goes, I "Remember on the way down, <gasps> on the way down, you gave me. Uh, you're like, okay, well, what are the thoughts going through your head as you plummet to the earth at terminal velocity?" And I was able to like throw out this, you know, this is what I'm thinking about, and it's super sweet and touching, and then. And, then the then it was like I looked down at my notes and out by Butcher's name in the initiative I see a note scribbled Death Ward and I went so I, I let the the moment just hang yeah. there for a second and then I went <gasps> Butcher raises up covered in gore and blood <laughs> which you have a one lot HP that that games <laughs> so I remember um, and it was kind of a an out of the blue thing that we did. When I, you know, when I play a character, I try to actually play the character. And the way this arc started with Butcher, uh, he was with this group. He's trying to find his wife, uh, who has gone into this other dimension and is missing. Okay. Um, it was his driving force, and probably it, it was in the first season we found her. We rescued her, or she kind of helped rescue us. We all we all made it out, and uh, that made sense for Butcher to be done. You know that that he wasn't an adventurer. He was. He was capable, but he was there to find his wife. So, like, kind of out of the blue, it's like, hey, Brody, I, I think Butcher's done. He found his wife. So we made another character for me to play in yeah. that. So it was like a pretty big pivot there that wasn't necessarily planned. And we Eventually, um, because it, he enjoyed being with the people and he missed the fun, um, Butcher did wind up connecting back up with the group. But, you know, I, I think that it was really good that Brody was flexible enough uh, in his storytelling or that thing that made sense to my character to happen that way. Cause that is the thing. Like if, if you as a DM, if you're not, cause thankfully fifth edition, because I know a lot of people say, well, it's, it's too, it's too vague. It's too generic. That's why we don't play fifth edition. No, that's why you should play fifth edition. It's because it allows for you, the DM and you, the player to go, okay, this rule isn't exactly set in stone, let me push it and do something amazingly awesome. And it's it's okay to do that. And it's okay That's, to do that. I know it's uncomfortable for a lot of people because people use the framework and the rules to make themselves comfortable, and there's absolutely nothing uh, yeah, wrong with that at all. Um, but if you can, you know, step out of the side of the comfort zone just a little bit 
there's a lot of meat on the bone there. It is, and it's when when DMs they look at you know, they look at scenarios where the players about to do something that they're not prepared for. They the famous you know, well no you can't do that, and I'm the DM. This is my world, so I see, I get the final say. Which I just look at somebody and go, man, you you have no creativity, do you? I expect to hear that a lot of the time um, because especially in like combat situations, I have ideas, but I'm not sure how they mechanically play out. Um, and anytime that happens in my head and it comes to my turn, I will ask the DM, this is what I would like to attempt to do. Do you have something that we can mechanically use to exercise that? And if they don't, that's fine, you know, because uh, it is. It's up to the DM. But I have been blessed in that my DMs are like, okay, well, let's see what we can do with that real quick. The if 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 you watch my my show, I say my show. If you watch the session we put up, you will know about Montel, aka Stormy, aka Mike. He is my out of the box player. I mean, he he's the one who kissed the blood kissed hag. The hag. He, yeah, his, all all this kind of stuff. But the the first session, he I believe he was the one that wanted to try to basically rodeo ride an Atiyug and keep its tentacles big, busy while the fight, there was this whole big thing. And he wanted, well, uh, I have this ability, will this work? And I could have been like, no, man, that's not going to work. But I'm like, okay, well, he's approaching this from a different point of view. And it's, I use the, 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 the Brennan Lee Mulligan, yes, but. And we kind of begin to work through, okay, well, you have this ability here. And that's closer to what you're wanting to do. And roll me an Arcana check to see if you know how to apply it. Yeah. And so we kind of we use the mechanics to eventually make our way back around to what he wanted to do. Now, it wasn't exactly the same way he wanted to do it, but the outcomes were the same. Yeah. And he almost got eaten by an Agyug, and it was funny to watch. Uh, our DM for our Wednesday night game, Jeff, uh, he, God bless him, he's, he is <laughs> flexible with stuff, and he will listen to some of these crazy ideas, and he, he truly tries to make sure that the players get to have good experience. Would you like to tell the carriage story for that one, or should I? Um, I'll let you tell the carriage story, but one of the things that, like, it's an example of of him being willing to let the train come off the tracks a little bit. Um, I do a lot of grappling with the character I'm playing in that campaign, and I know that, like, I'm not really capable of grappling things, you know, a yeah. size larger than me or whatever, unless you take which, yeah. the feet, which I just got. But um, there were these kind of small-ish dragons. They're still a size category larger than us. And I was trying to figure out how to save one of our PCs that was in really rough shape there. Um, and I wanted to grapple, but I knew I couldn't get the creature. And I asked, real simply, can I get the wing? Can I get a wing? And he thought about it for a second. He's like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, rules is written. That doesn't you, happen. You grapple a creature. You don't grapple. Yeah. yeah. But I was able to mobilize the wing, and it brought the yeah. thing down so it could be fight. And it turned the fight into a good, fun fight. Everybody enjoyed it. We got the enemy where we could attack it. It, it was a plus, not a negative. And yeah. that's not always, as the train coming off the tracks, a negative in D&D. Real life, pretty bad. D&D, not so much. I was listening to uh, to the Dungeon Dudes on YouTube, and they they mentioned something about how that, you know, a a perfect story in D&D is not the old-style, uh, you know, iron carriage style of train. It's a maglev train. Yes, it has that direction, but as you watch that train as it moves, it rises, it falls, it moves from side to side. Now it still has that that you know that forward momentum, but there is so much give that happens. That is a really sweet analogy. And I was like, that's yeah. an amazing analogy. Yeah, that's good. You have the you're going to the, the same. It's, you have that singular outcome, 
but you have so much, you know, maneuverability within those constrictions. And you contain momentum. You can, you're, you're you can, continuing you can momentum yeah. is great. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea a lot. Um, I have uh, another one of you. You I throw in. Uh, I feel so targeted today. <laughs> uh, an exa- another example from a different game. So uh, my first time playing with James and DMing was I uh, ran an Aliens game for them. When this is before the actual Alien RPG by Free League came out. So I had my own system that I apparently burned through four hard drives to make. Uh, that's an inside joke. Um, this is like, I sought Brody out. I hadn't even met him yet. I heard about this game like fifth hand from some people. And I, I had to ask around. I was like, who is this? Who does this game? And a, a, a LGS shop owner pointed me towards Brody. And I was like, that's the guy. And I don't know if you know, like if you've never met Brody, he walks around and there's this really serious look on his face. And it's a little intimidating. Um, so when I when I saw who he was, I was like, "Hey, uh, I heard about this game that you do." <laughs> he has resting rules lawyer face. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I've been told that a lot too. It's a problem I have to work on. Um, <laughs> so basically, we uh, we were playing this aliens game that I had um, made rules for, and we're having a lot of fun with it. We were nearing the end of that uh, campaign, and it involved. Um, them being on a like desert, a wasteland planet. It was basically like Arrakis from Dune, only without the sandworms. Um, there's a a moment where there was a ton of xenomorphs in this this like um, facility with these huge double doors. Where there's this roaring sandstorm outside that you know pierces metal and you know, it'll uh, cut flesh. So, on top of having xenomorphs in there running around there was a ton of Wayland yutani commandos there too. So this little ragtag group of Marines was trying their best to get out of here. Well, there, the reason why the Xenomorphs were drawn to this place was there was a Praetorian that was in the process of transforming into a queen. It was in a pupa state, so it was defenseless. James had the brilliant idea. He just picked her up. He picked the larval form up of this queen and carried it around at gunpoint. The xenomorphs stopped dead in their tracks because they would not risk the danger of the queen. Their whole biological imperative was in danger. You realize that, like that's that's a main point in the movie in the book, Starship Trooper, right? He literally takes the brain bug and is like, "Yo, fuck with me." He gets it right now. I pop a cap. And, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, well, this is this is uncharted territory." Uh, uh, okay. And then he convinced one of the other players to open the bay doors so that the sandstorm could roll in. So once the <laughs> doors came open and pounds and pounds of sand began to like torrent in, it disoriented the commandos. It, it caused chaos with the xenomorphs who started attacking everything to keep the queen safe. Oh, wow. They managed to get on board a dropship with the queen larva. <laughs> there were some really hairy rolls involved. It was very, very stressful. Wow. And flee. I mean, there was another fight that ensued after that, but that was an example of some uh, of a complete and total monkey wrench thrown into the plans because <laughs> I had run this for a different group already. And so I was like, okay, I, I, you know, I, have, I know how this will go. This was not planned, so You're I was like, right there, "Okay, I know how this will go." That okay, is this is this words. is new, <laughs> and I was I was all for it. It's like, 
uh, okay, I knew how the last group did things. And, <laughs> and when this went off the rails, I was like, oh boy, this is exciting. I aim to introduce new experiences. I, uh, so there are a couple of you, this individual we're going to mention because uh, he is what we have now dubbed our sound orc. And that is our, our dear and loving uh, weeaboo named Mike. Audio uh, orc. The audio orc. So uh, I was running in one shot. And in one shots, I'm a lot more forgiving, a lot more lenient because yeah. it's a one shot. It kind of really doesn't. Yeah. Especially because at the end of this one shot, they didn't know they were going to die. So it didn't matter what they did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so it's essentially it was kind of like a, a lost world kind of area with dinosaurs and ancient creatures. And so they're in a, uh, basically like a, an old style, like flat bottom riverboat going down this ancient river and they get attacked by a plesiosaur. Well, the plesiosaur has an ability that as a reaction, it can dive underwater after it takes damage, kind of a way to like maneuver around. Well, uh, Mike was playing a dragonborn. Uh, that he was a barbarian and had assembled various aspects of other animals about him through like the means of totem and items. He was basically a dragon crocodile badger through like other like items. And it was, it I'm going to need a miniature of that. I, I we're going to have to get one made. It's really great. But one of the abilities let, let him breathe underwater basically. Well, the plesiosaur, while it could not breathe underwater, it could hold its breath for a long time. Our dear friend, Mike proceeds to then grapple this plesiosaur which does not have a very high strength score, mind you, so it easily failed, and stuck his hands inside its nostrils. Somebody then hit it. It dove underwater. It came up on its turn to try to breathe. Mike still holding the grapple. Somebody hit it. It dove underwater. It could not get a full breath in. The plesiosaur drowned. He, he drowned he, a water creature? He, he drowned an aquatic dinosaur, yes. What the hell, Mike? Now, now to be fair, you almost, he's, he's here in the studio with us, you almost lost your life doing that because they had to fish your ass out. Kudos, sir. <laughs> Respect. You did try to eat it, that's right. They, they pulled him up, he's got his like, neck and his jaw. Um, that, that, was, that, was, that was a great I, I love players like Mike because I'm sitting there going, Oh, I'm okay. Well, folk, we got this. All right. So this is, and it's, it's the improv. It's that the, the DM's ability to like kind of bob and weave and stick and move. Yeah. And you just get a haymaker. It's like, okay, well let's, let's try to, you know, get back into it. I've got an example, uh, another example involving James. Surprise, <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> you are being targeted today, buddy. Lord, I apologize for the things I've done. <laughs> I'm probably going to do them again though. So. And this is a this is a good one though, and this was an example of uh, the story taking a different route that is unexpected to everybody at the table except for the player that sprung it on the DM. Um, is this the traitor thing? Yes. Okay. So uh, in the first Tagande campaign, James' second character, um, Shame, this is the uh, guy I made when we decided to let Butcher spend some yeah. time with his wife. When when Butcher's story w- was told, James made Shame, who is a ranger rogue, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in this story, uh, there was a point where they took these, these, uh, werewolf children. They were, uh, pure blood. They were born werewolves. They took them to, uh, this wave place far North to be with a pack that they trusted. They knew that these were good werewolves. They, they, they wouldn't kill people, uh, intentionally. So, Throughout this whole thing, uh, shame. I'm trying to remember the exact reason why he did what he did. When you allowed an entity to bite you, uh, this is what how you gained lycanthropy, wasn't it? 
Yes, this is how I got lycanthropy. We were in a situation um, where I didn't feel like I could protect my mother, who was That's in a wheelchair, right. and she was very important to shame, kind of like his his rock. Yeah, and sh- James allowed shame to get bitten by a, a questionable individual, and it was not a good idea, and it lo- caused some immediate friction because when everyone found out what he had done, he had done it in a place that, okay, so this entity was the brother of the host of which they place they were staying at, who was the good werewolf. It, it was Hati and Skull were the two, and Skull's the, the evil one. Yeah. So upon finding out this, Casey's character, Brynvar, confronted him immediately and, he's like, and got in his face and was like, why would you do this? You're, you cursed yourself. You, you caused... Uh, you can't, we, you're going to transform and you're going to become a problem for us. And then when Fenris uh, Hati found out, he got super mad and threatened to either end him or force him to leave. It was a very rough session wow. for shame. Yeah. Like I, I almost felt like some of the players were upset at me, but I had like my character had done this thing in secret because he knew the other characters wouldn't be okay with it. And and in my defense, Skull was incredibly persuasive. He was. He, like he, he leaned on all of the buttons he knew were there. He put the icing on the cake and handed it to him and said, take a bite. <laughs> uh, it got so – there was a moment there that I kind of leaned back as a DM and was like, uh, do we need to stop the session? Because uh, Casey and James both were yelling at each other it in was character. very powerful role play. They were like – it was a screaming match almost. And uh, it, the session ended with uh, Shame leaving. He departed into the frozen north just disappeared in a blizzard and everyone else is like, what just happened? And then when the session was over, everyone was like, damn, that was good. Yeah. And we were just, and it was, it was all part of the role play. There was no actual ill feelings there. They were yeah, yelling yeah. in character yeah. and it was so good. It was one of those moments like we wish this was recorded, but yeah. it led to him turning traitorous. So he went and joined uh, general Merrock's forces and became sort of like he, I was a, a double spy. agent. He was, was a double, a double agent. agent. What What's really, really significant about that for me is the situation where he did do the actual traitorous act. There was the, the MacGuffin, basically, yeah. that our group had, and General Merrick wanted it. And he had us kind of bent over a barrel. Casey was holding the MacGuffin. And I stepped to side with Merrick, but Casey had to agree to give me that MacGuffin. And I, like, I gave him a look, intentionally, in character. I gave him a look. And there was that moment in, in role play where Casey and his character had to balance, because it's not something we talked about uh, beforehand. Yeah. It came up organically. Casey and his character had to make the decision, do I trust this guy this much that has just caused all of this strife a couple of sessions ago? Yeah, and it was a, there was almost an unseen signal between James and Casey because I didn't notice it at first. And I don't think anybody else at the table really caught it either. Xander maybe have, but he didn't say anything. Um, they, they both acknowledged like it was, it was almost like a, a TV or movie moment. They both knew what, what the plan was like Brynvar knew deep down that shame wasn't going to turn. He knew fully that, okay, he's going to be our agent on the inside, but we'll find some way to communicate. And when he handed that thing off to him, there was an acknowledgement there. And Casey played it off by like, like just being like almost mean to him. Like, yeah. 
he was trying to play up the fact that, you know, you're a traitor. Yeah. Kind of thing. And it paid off in the end, though. Of course, it, it made James sweat super bad because there was moments <laughs> I where... I was so nervous. Every time he would go, okay, we need to have a moment in Shane's situation. I Like, I would tense up physically. The other part, the other uh, people at the table enjoyed it because oh, yeah. they got to see a side of the game that normally isn't expressed. You get to see the villains talking and interacting. And him being a player, he was there inside the war council, basically. He was always near General Merrick, and it was a moment of uh, shame being on thin ice and uh, on his toes because he, he thought at a moment he could just like, well, this is it. I could just die it was, any moment. It was so great being being in that situation because Brody portrayed General Merrick really well. Um, it was like you were in the room with someone that you, A, knew was incredibly dangerous, and B, you knew they were smarter than you were. Yeah. And that that is a really really vulnerable feeling. That it's it's very I love when it, when when it does happen. You get that one player that kind of wants to side or become double agent, because then as you begin, because normally your players only see the the they only have, what's the best way to put this when it comes to their the big bad evil guy their main villain they only see them in one way they only they only react to him yeah they don't see the preparations they don't see the the hidden machinations. All they do is they react to the things he either is doing or have done. But that moment where you can go, okay, here's what is happening behind the scenes. Here's how he's planning, what he's thinking. And you can add more and more layer and depth to a villain. That just want, that pulls those players in deeper and deeper. Matter of fact, there was a few moments where uh, he would sit there and he would openly talk about his plans in front of Shane. And he knew full well that, that you know, Shane probably wasn't to be trusted. He was testing the waters and he would like turn and actually look James character in the face and be like, what do you think? While all the other villains in the room are looking at shame. For me, the balance there was, I, I have to make sure that I, he knows that I understand his idea is a good idea. What can I salvage out of that? And for the most part, it was generally me trying to figure out how to sneak people out of the city. He has taken over. So, I was going along with all these horrible plans he had. And on the side, I had kind of created just like this secret railroad to get people out of the city. Like you, you were going like full departed with like, you know, the general was Nicholson and your character was, was DiCaprio like sitting there trying to get into the inner circle and everything at the same time. It, know, it was not die. It was probably some of the most beautiful role playing I've ever been a part of. It and was great. It's actually, it's, it's kind of the, the main point of that is that these, these randomness, these mishaps, these things that don't that don't go like we want to can lead to some of the most amazing role play and the best story progression from from players. Uh, I'm reminded by what we I just mentioned the carriage story. I I came into the <laughs> to the Wednesday game very late. Uh, there was there there was a party dynamic. I had to switch characters. I'm, I'm glad I love my character now a lot. Everyone more. loves Artie. Artie Artie is great. Artie is he he he's a little soft king. Uh, <laughs> But so the uh, the main villain, uh, well, Dolph's the main villain, shows up in a carriage right after one of our PCs. It appeared had betrayed us. Yes, yes, and it, it was it was great, and uh, and so the the two of the the uh, two of the player, two uh, James's character, and another character rush this carriage through the door open. There's the chain king sitting in there, and the PC who betrayed us. 
And that's where that session ended. And together. So, they together. were together. They were together. And my, like, my character is so broken up. This is like he had become to, to identify these people as family, right? And like this he considered kind of like his sister. And it, I don't know if your sister's ever dated a shithead. Yes. Um, but uh, that's kind of how it felt to him. You know, she's with this guy. He's bad for her. You know, he, he's trying to kill us, which is also not cool. I've all, you know, maybe, maybe if I had treated some of their exes like you treated the chain king, uh, things would have turned a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the following session, man, man you do weird things to care. Like, carriages just have weird things when it comes to First you. First of it's- all, there was a carriage thing done to me in the other story. <laughs> I feel like this is my retribution against carriages here. So, so the first thing <laughs> that, uh, was it, was it you or, or, uh, or Juniper who, who cast silence to start with? Uh, I silenced it because I was playing the, the, the monk, the, the monk that can yeah. do that. So yeah. you, you silenced him to where he, uh, he goes to step out of the carriage and our, our DM, uh, an amazing detailed storyteller, but he didn't realize that when you put a detail out there, it's Chekhov's gun. If you describe something, it can inter- it can be interacted with. I look for the details, and he he did a great job planting that one. And uh, he said his chains drag the ground as he steps off the carriage. And I had slipped under. And you the had carriage. slipped underneath the carriage, and so uh, Theseus, James's character, looks at <laughs> looks at Jeff and goes. I grab the chains and pull. He <laughs> proceeds to sweep the chain king off his feet under the carriage. I have a belt of giant strength, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, this is still a big bad villain. So, yes. you know, and and my character, Artie, is built. I, I love playing support, so I built what I call my perfect support cleric. So I cast uh, Enhance Ability, Bull Strength yes. on Theseus. Mm-hmm. Bull strength says you get advantage on strength-based checks, and your carrying capacity is doubled. Well, he's got a belt of giant strength. <laughs> he then proceeds to basically chain-tie the chain king to the carriage. I slip back through the other door of the carriage, <laughs> and then I asked Jeff, I was like, "Is there? An, can I knot this chain? And he's like, okay, you can use an action to knot the chain. So instead of attacking that turn, I'm like, I knot the chain. And he... <laughs> There is a there there's a uh, there's a biblical scene that I'm reminded of the <laughs> Samson chained to the great pillars uh, of the Philistines uh, and the moment where he just like rips the chains free except this time folks the chains are connected to a carriage and you basically began to helicopter that bitch yeah like that scene <laughs> that scene with Hulk and Loki where he's just yeah. like slam 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 that's pretty much what was going on with the main bad guy who was tied to a carriage yes. by his own chains that he couldn't get away from. And I love because the what ended it is you just let go. Like, yeah. I think you just let go, and mm-hmm. he, he kind of got up and began to move out of the silent zone. To which Artie, I don't know where I got because Artie, like I play Artie, very very timid, very meek. But his whole thing is he's seeing he's his whole uh, progression is he doesn't know what he's capable of, but he sees people around him who are these great heroes, and they are supporting him, so it's giving him more confidence. So one of my favorite one-liners of the game so far was because he's so the chain king steps out of the stone out of the silence because the the character the BBEG is like straight up magic user, like everything's magic spell casting. So he steps out of the zone of silence. On his next turn, he's going to start casting spells. To which I go, Mister Theseus didn't say you could talk, and I cast silence on him, <laughs> and you can see Jeff's face just plummet. <laughs> it he had the look of you assholes. <laughs> But in a good way. <laughs> but in a good way. That is like a humiliating thing for a villain to go through. Yeah, I've had a villain suffer the same fate before. Yeah, it's, 
<laughs> and it's, I look, I think that's what it is, is where you, you actually hit the nail on the head. It's when we as DMs, we love to describe and give our players this world to interact with, and we'll mention something, not thinking about it, but then our players take that, and they interact with it in a way that we aren't prepared for. Mm-hmm. And again, that's where like improv and all that kind of stuff happens. And it, look, improv, improvisation. Improvisation. Yes, that word. Thank you. Improving is a <laughs> is is a big deal for a DM. You have to be able to to look at look at a situation. Okay, so this has happened. I need to react to it. And it's fun when your when your players give you those times where you aren't prepared for. And so the 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 NPC or the environment or whatever it may be is reacting as though it actually happened. Yeah. And it allows for some amazing things to happen. I, yeah. I think leaving those threads whether it's for a backstory for the DM to, you know, work with, or if you're a DM leaving threads that you don't necessarily have tied off at the end, I think it's important to do that on purpose to give opportunities for this kind of stuff. Um, if, if the DM's plan is this beautiful field, uh, sometimes you have to break the ground to get the seed in. But what grows from that seed is going to be awesome. Beautiful analogy. Or just pluck all the flowers up. <laughs> that happens to you. Just burn the field. Just imagine uh, Mike going tiptoe through the tulips now, just picking flowers and throwing them in the air. Moffat, you mentioned earlier. Um, you, you mentioned a story about where the dice just did not allow for something to happen because the dice rolls were so poor. Have do either of you have any other stories where the you're trying to get the story to fruition or it's an epic scene and the dice just say no. I have one kind of, and it actually is about the Wednesday game. It was Artie's first day on the job. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it, it was great. I you know because whole, his whole story is he was in a he was he was orphan. He was cloistered in a cathedral. Uh, like he's only like you know twenty two, twenty three years old. This is his first adventure. Uh, he kills his first person. Almost has a Pete. Almost has a traumatic shock because of it. But then one of my fellow. Uh, fellow party members attack something undead. Well, I have a mace of disintegration. If I hit something undead, there's a chance I would just destroy it, which will stop any on-death triggers. Apparently, Juniper didn't realize that. So she hits this undead giant, I think. It was like a troll or a giant or yeah, something. And then proceeds to explode in, like, necrotic ichor. And I roll to resist. And Artie rolls a natural one. Pretty much already had his mouth open when this thing got destroyed. Which meant by by the house rules that we're playing in, I took double the damage on that on that uh that ability check that ability, and it it I, I went from full health to nothing in one shot. So oh it, God, yeah, our Artie Artie was put down on his first day, and I. <laughs> What a day! What a first day! Yeah, that, a lot of weird things happened <laughs> he, that first. His day character for actually had a lot of firsts that day. The, the first time he got drunk, um, <laughs> the first time he got flirted with, it, it was a lot. It was super fun too. Like to the, to the point where my cleric, my spiritual weapon is a giant, like uh, it's a giant pillow, like a stuffed animal. So that's what <laughs> my my spiritual weapon I'm hitting people with is like this giant. That it's it's great. He'll never adventure again after such a rough first day. Oh no, he jumped right back on the horse. <laughs> I, my character, like he's his character is very kind of timid and stuff. Um, my character has started referring to him as our war cleric, just because <laughs> I want him to come into that. And you know, you kind of speak the things into existence that you want to happen. You know, you hear something enough, you start you start portraying that. Um, to answer your question for me, one of the things that I have kind of learned the really hard way: don't hinge critical plot moments on a dice roll. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so many times we'll attach something that needs to happen to a perception role or a persuasion role or something like that. Sometimes I feel like it's just way better to let that be RP. Like, you know, let them, let them do that in character. Um, because the dice can just screw you sometimes. Yeah. Um, I've lost whole plot lines to a bad dice roll. Uh, again, I'm reminded of the the last episode of Exandria, uh, like the calamity they did, where Sam did his whole big spill as as the uh, as the shapeshifter, essentially news anchor, and it was just this great moment of role play, very emotional, very in depth. And Brennan stands up and goes, "When when a player takes an action in, in a role playing game." A dice roll is required because there may be a chance for failure. Sometimes things happen. Your players give you an amazing performance where there is no chance of failure. And I think that's what it is. If if it's in a moment where there is no chance that this thing could fail, don't roll the dice. Yep. Let it happen. I, I'm, yep. And myself, I've caught myself where, and I've, I'm, I'm proud to say it's one of those where I'm, I recognize I'm changing to where I go, okay, you don't need to make a roll for this this happened or yep. I don't roll and this thing happened. It's, it's okay if some things don't have a chance for failure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if someone is putting that kind of work in, in the role play side of the game, don't, don't trip them up. Yeah. You know, let that, let that be rewarded. Yeah. I, I like that, that ideology too. Like, I, and I can hear people going, well, that's not, that's not how the rules work. It's like, well, screw the rules. They're more like a guidebook anyhow. I think we. I think at one point, all three of us now have said that exact line on this podcast. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to bend the rules. Exactly. I mean, uh, don't new, do that in real life. No, no, but, no, uh, no, not real life. Also, like the train coming off the tracks, not good <laughs> real life. The a lot of newer DMs, um, that this is just a comfort thing for them to really know the rules frontwards and backwards, so they feel like they they know what happens in every situation and they can call that. You can tell when someone has been seasoned when they decide to allow the rules to not apply or to be bent or applied differently. I, I keep a copy of the player's handbook beside me for all my games. Not Very rarely do I ever flip to the front half of it for rulings and like that kind of stuff. What I use it for is because I, look, I, I have a great long-term memory. There are a lot of spells in D&D and you cannot memorize all of them. No, yep, there's a few. For sure. Uh, and a lot of it also is like, you know, play, you know, class question, but the actual base rules of it, I, I rarely, you know, rarely ever look at there maybe once or twice. Uh, but I'm like you, a lot of times it's okay. Right now, what makes sense? This thing happening or this very strict structure of the rule? I'm like, no, this makes more sense to me. So we're going to let this happen. Uh, we, we can, I mean, I, I think all three of us are just big proponents of homebrewing. I think we can do it. We can do an entire episode on that. Because I've got to literally have a, a list of homebrew rules that I love, you know, stuff like drinking a potion as a bonus action. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, wait, matter of fact, I heard that discussion on, uh, I don't know if I was there for that that episode, but <laughs> drink the rules as written as opposed to home house ho, homebrew rules. Yeah, there was, we were talking about the uh, the rules lawyer where, you know, drinking. No, yeah. yeah, that's what it was, but yeah. I have an asinine amount of Google Docs <laughs> that is full of homebrew stuff. Uh, I think we have a topic for our, one of our next podcasts then, homebrew. Yeah, homebrew stuff. <laughs> we, yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. Oh, yeah, because there's some good homebrew. There's some I've heard some bad homebrew as well. Uh, yeah. One of the, the main issues with homebrew is balance. That's what when people start homebrewing stuff, that's the biggest issue they run into 
because there are the min-maxers out there. There are the people that when they realize that there's a homebrew rule they can exploit, they will hammer that thing. And what I love is the people that will take like aspects of other genres, especially anime. Anime is a big one. They try to work into, into role-playing games. And I'm sorry. Look, I, I love Natsu. I, uh, I love the main guy from Black Clover. I can't give you a sword that can cut magic in half that will not work in D&D. <laughs> Look, Moffat, when I started playing D&D, it was in junior college, so <laughs> we were all about some anime. I think I think Brody's inner uh, inner anime fan has been attacked. <laughs> I would love to make a shield like the Rising of the Shield Hero, but it would be so OP. Look, when we, we were playing Inuyasha back in the day, <laughs> yeah. we were trying to stat the Tetsaiga and oh, the Tensega, God. and it was like, this is, this is broken. Like, there's no way the, I can let a player have this, but we did. You gave someone Tetsaiga. I don't think it was actually Tetsaiga, but I made stats for like Naraku and oh, all of these, and they were so broken and OP. <laughs> like, players like, I try to hide. All right, you hide. Naraku still sees you. What? How? He just levels the forest with a cloud of miasma. That's bullshit. <laughs> Look, this was the early days when we didn't know what we were doing, that's, and that's we were just, just playing around. <laughs> we got better. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have to you have to start somewhere, and, and again, like that's. But it's kind of fun when things go off the rails. Like, yeah, you know, you you were you were new, but you were having fun. That was the main point. It, it may have not have made sense, and you may have all been like Goku levels of overpowered, but it was fun. And a lot of the, and that's where a lot of this, you know, uh, and it, it it kind of I hate to see when DMs and players they don't allow or they're too scared to to take these moments and maybe go against the grain. Think out of the box, yeah. as it were. Yep. Oh, I have just thought popped in my head. I have an actual, oops, I uh, shouldn't have allowed that to happen, go off the rails moment. Uh, I gave Brenvar the Moonlight Great Sword. I remember this. It was such a point of contention. It's a plus three legendary weapon yes. with all kinds of asinine abilities, and he was using it. Y'all were fighting a white dragon. He killed it in several hits. It wasn't many hits, but it was several. What level? I mean, that that's they were ten. It had to, or at least somewhere close to ten, like eight, nine, or ten. It was like, one of those. That's like an epic level. Yeah, I, I know, Moffat. I had to break the sword. <laughs> What's bad? I had is to like, correct my own mistake. Casey told him when he did it, you shouldn't give, give me, me this. this. Don't. Oh God. This is this is going to end poorly. He's like, nah, nah, I, we're good. I, it's I, like I, all <laughs> those little homebrew uh, items. I have little cards for. So I handed him the card, and he goes. This is a legendary weapon. It's the Moonlight Greatsword. Yeah, of course it's legendary. I, I have one real quick one as well. It, it was, it's one where my players used my own terminology because I, I gave them a homebrewed weapon. where and they, they, were high, they were getting high level in, in, in GURPS terms. Like they were about level 15 or 16. They, they were up there in power. And the weapon had basically it could, it, 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 the ability was called called shot to the eye. It would give a natural, a natural critical attack. What well, was called called shot to the eye. In one session, the archer found an arrow of dispelling where wherever it hit, whatever target it hits, there's a check. If they fail, it dispels any magical effects. In Pathfinder, there's a giant magical hurricane <laughs> called, uh, uh, called Abednego. Guess what hurricanes have? An eye. They have an eye. So this <laughs> archer went to the top of a mountain of a, of a mountain nearby where you could he could see the hurricane roiling around and he goes I want to shoot the hurricane okay um okay uh, make your attack he goes nah uh 
I use my my, my I use my one this this once a day this this once ever ability called shot to the eye. What? And I also shot the dispelling arrow. What? <laughs> <laughs> that seems like some. Hang on, we're go, we gotta pause the game. We we I want I literally because we called him Sting. Like Sting, hang on a second, man. You your shoe because Moffat is the ability here called shot to the eye. This is literally the eye of a Abednego I, with the dispelling arrow. What happens? Like I I need a, I need a few minutes, guy. And it it it. I mean it it was but that moment led to an amazing change in the story. And it was but that the moment of, you did what? Well, did it work? Opens, it did, yes. It opens worked. book, yeah. Checks out, yeah. yeah checks out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Then, because the thing is, my, my entire thing was the 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 hurricane was protecting a, a tomb of a fallen god. Well, he needed to find the item of this god. So now this basically it, it was this whole big thing. But yeah, it was it was it was great. The fact that it, he, like I said, I, I described it. I gave it the ability called shot to the eye. And he fired the dispelling arrow at the eye of a hurricane. That seems like somebody <laughs> thinking outside the box. Why are you <laughs> looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot that I'm forgetting too. Oh, and I, I, I know there's a lot more, but it, that there, we just don't have the time for it. Uh, yeah. It's there's so much. So again, all, all these, the, this weirdness, this randomness, it makes stories, it makes friendships, it makes memories. And in the end, that's what this game we love so much does it brings, the true magic of D&D. It is the true magic of D&D. These epic and legendary quests that we go on in our mind become amazing stories that we can look back on and just laugh our uh, Hunter, if you ever listen to this episode, I will never forget when you fired the called shot into the eye of a Abednego. That will always be one of the greatest that when you flipped the coin to determine if you loved a woman or not. That was great. Uh, <laughs> That seems like a story for another episode. That's a story for another episode. It was it was great. So on the on that weird coin flip of a, of an ending, there, folks. We're going to go ahead and call this episode a great episode. It was uh, with the final idea being: don't be afraid to think outside the box. Don't be afraid to to look at what you can do, but always talk to your dungeon master. What will yeah. they allow? Uh, give them a chance to go. Hey, I I wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. If I do this, what could happen? That gives them that moment of, okay, well, give me a moment. I'll get back to you. Yeah, it's fun to spring things on your DM and just see that look of, what, 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 what are you doing? It, it can be funny, but if if it goes too far off the rails, you don't want to disrupt the story for everybody. Correct. Don't Relax your shoulders. Don't be so tense and rigid. Yeah. The rules can be flexible. This it's not, it's not the DM versus the players. You can talk about things outside of game. You can yeah. discuss what you want to do. I love my I love the Discord because I see all my players' plans. I go, cool, they want to do this. I can adjust for it. I can do this. Or I can, you know, make it fall around around their ears. Uh so with with that final thought there, folks. Uh as always, I am Kenneth Moffat, aka Southern D. James at the Hive. Be safe, guys. Brody, aka Elder Friendress. And no matter what you do this week, folks, may it be the stuff of legend. And in these trying times, I'm just gonna always say, be good to each other. Later. Don't forget to follow us, like us, subscribe us, rate us, and uh, uh, plug us on any social media. Follow us, spread the word, spread our influence. We have to get the cleansing ritual done, James. (laughs) It's Brody's turn today. We have cupcakes? Not anymore. Not anymore. Damn it, Brody.